I begin this episode by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Yambri people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work. I acknowledge their ancient and continuing connection to this land and its waterways, and I pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners of this podcast. Welcome to the Coconut Wireless Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lardner. Got a uh, really, really special episode for you this week. It is, of course, the Reconciliation Week special episode. Um, so for, for those of you who may be based overseas and, and, and don't, uh, aren't sort of across it, uh, the podcast, this podcast is based on Ngunnawal and Yambri country um, in the ACT in Australia. And uh, as part of that, we, we, we always try to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land um, that the podcast is based on. Part of that is, uh, of course, the uh, acknowledgement of country that we, we do every at the beginning of every episode. Uh, but very early on, I, I made the decision to, you're on significant uh, days and, and milestones and, and weeks, of course, in this case. Uh, in the uh, Indigenous uh, calendar, we would uh, do special episodes to mark those as well. So um, this is the first of those such episodes, and uh, I'm very, very excited to be able to bring on uh, Cass Lardner, who is uh, an amazing artist and mother and uh, and, and wife. Uh, she's, she's my wife, as you may have guessed from the, uh, the similar last names. She very graciously, she's a very humble person, and she doesn't love the limelight. Uh, so she she was very very graciously, after a lot of pleading, has uh, has agreed to come on the podcast and uh, have a chat about um, reconciliation week. And but yeah, mainly her story and her journey, both as an artist and yeah, personally, uh, yeah, she's got this this incredibly rich family history, which she 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 was um, very very uh, very very gracious in uh, agreeing to share with with you the listeners i'm obviously somewhat familiar with it um but yeah it's uh, it's really exciting to 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 share that because uh, yeah she's she's the last person to admit it uh but yeah she is she is an amazing artist and amazing in many many other ways so it's, it's really really uh, exciting to to showcase that on this podcast so um a really special episode i hope you like it it is a, a bit of a longy um a touch over an hour but um worth worth every every minute so i hope you enjoy it here she is cass lardner and walawani welcome to a very special reconciliation week episode of the Coconut Wireless Podcast. I'm joined here today by Cass Lardner, who is a, an amazing uh, Indigenous artist. Uh, she also works, uh, does some very important work in uh, Aboriginal employment, national parks, and uh, she's also my wife. Uh, she's very graciously agreed to come on uh, this, again, very special episode of the podcast to discuss uh, herself and her work for uh, Gary Barabara Arts and um, and just give us a bit of a bit of background information into Reconciliation Week and um, and a bit of an insight into her Indigenous heritage and uh, community. Uh, Cass, welcome. Waluani, Bula. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the pod. 
Very, oh no, very, very glad to have you here. Uh, very grateful to have you here. Uh, look, as we usually do um, with uh, with most most of the guests on this podcast, um, could you just give me a bit of um, bit, well, and listeners more importantly, a bit of uh, background into you and and who you are. Hmm. Um, well, I'm Cass. I am a proud Wabunja, Yuan and Wiradjuri woman. So through my grandmother, she hails from Wiradjuri country in Narendra in far western New South Wales. And through my grandfather's country, I'm a Wabunja, Yuan traditional custodian on the far south coast of New South Wales. Um, I'm also a mother to two beautiful um, and sassy (laughs) little girls and the better half to uh, Jeremy, who has a podcast, um, who is where on. Recently found out about. (laughs) Um, I'm glad, glad to be here, but um, yeah, that's me currently living and creating and raising kids and a family on Ngunnawal and Nambri country, which is the ACT. And yeah, working in Indigenous affairs, which I have done for most of my life and most of my career. So full-time position with National Parks of Australia. And my primary role is trying to get more traditional owners' jobs on their country. So on Uluru National Park, uh, Kakadu National Park and Buttery National Park. So three really beautiful uh, areas and, um, yeah, trying to get more of those traditional owners to be able to work on their country to protect it and maintain it. Oh, that's, that's that's wonderful. Um, look, I, I really, I'm really excited to talk to you and have the listeners hear about uh, Gary Barabara Arts, which is your your creative brand that you're you're currently working under. Um, but just talking about your, um, I guess your 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 day job career. You you've had this amazing career. That's um, obviously you're doing incredible work now, but you know that's no new new feat for you. You seem to certainly the the entire time that that I've known you, you've been doing these amazing things uh, through your work, uh, which is which which is um, always really really impressed me. And your passion for for your culture and your people uh, is always sort of manifests really really uh, powerfully through that. Um, Think back years and years years ago when we first sort of met. You you were doing a bit of work for uh, what was the ARU? It's Rugby Australia now. Could you just talk to me about um, your major project there um, all those years ago with uh, bringing the Indigenous jersey to fruition? Yeah, so well, I had two programs there that which were really exciting, and I think the work that I was able to do created a bit of a pathway. Um, to have these conversations about inclusion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So thinking back, just to put it into perspective, the there's a lot of, um, well, there's not a lot of actually uh, Indigenous players that have played for the Wallabies um, to be, to be quite, um, to put it into perspective, there's been 13, I think, wow. um, off, off the top of my head. 
Um, and even one of those, so we might all know, so the very first Indigenous wallaby was Lloyd McDermott, very famous. They have a Lloyd McDermott Foundation now created in his name. Um, and he he passed away not so long ago, but paved a, a way for Indigenous players and was very uh, instrumental in that conversation and to play at such a time where rugby was not an accessible sport for people who were of minority backgrounds. Um, but unearthing that, we go back a little bit more to the 30s and there's actually a player by the name of Cecil Romali and he played for the Wallabies Um he was a child of camel farmers and immigrants from Asia. And so he played under that banner as a, as a immigrant that had come over here. But uh, later on, after he had passed, the family came out and said, well, actually, he is of Aboriginal descent. His mother actually was Aboriginal and married his farmer, who was the um, Asian uh, immigrant who came over from India, I think it was. And they were camel farmers. But uh, in the 30s and the landscape of the, the country that we have, he had more opportunity saying he was uh, an immigrant from a from another country than to say he was a First Nations person from Australia. And um, those conversations were just a lot easier to have and gave him more rights in this country than being Aboriginal. So it's it's a sadly a common story. It's not um it's not new. It, it, you'll hear, you can hear a lot of these stories that happen. And so, but it came out and uh, rugby had to change a bit of their messaging to say, well, we acknowledge that Lloyd McDermott and he paved the way. And we say Lloyd McDermott was the first Aboriginal player to identify as being Aboriginal, who was the first Wallaby, but Cecil Romali was technically the first Aboriginal wallaby to play um and wear wear the cap and um in the 30s so we need to acknowledge his journey as well and and the history that that brings but also be very um mindful of lloyd mcdermott's history and and the impact that he made in the rugby community so i was uh interviewed for the job and i thought oh i'm gonna take this on I, i'm lucky enough to be from a very good pedigree of fam family. My uh, uncles, the Ella brothers, played for the, uh, the Wallabies as well. So they were three brothers who all played at the same time and um, two of them, one of them captained, mm. uh, captained the team. And so I went into it thinking, oh, this is something I can – try and do make a difference in um it, it's it, it's not many people who were identified as being indigenous that worked there so it was a bit of an isolating experience for me but I worked with some amazing people who were great allies and supporters and we delivered a primary school program called Deadly Sevens across the country 
which was a major success. And we, we utilised the AIS, had released a suite of sports, which were First Nations sports that they had pulled together and did a lot of research. So we created a school package that the kids could all learn in the classroom and then rugby skills to try and bring about the next generation of Wallabies um, and to get more black people to play, which is which is really exciting. But then the conversation also evolved into uh, the Indigenous jersey. So we were really lucky uh, to have those conversations and get that across the board. And the Wallabies jersey was the very first Indigenous jersey for uh, an Australian national team. So very exciting, very big to represent on the international stage, which was really exciting. And, you know, we've seen all the other codes of football do that. And for the rugby to come out and do it on the national level was really exciting. And I was lucky enough to go up to Suncorp and and take um, Jeremy. Well, you were there. <laughs> um, you were fanboying pretty hard at, at, at that event. So, um, got to see a bit behind the scenes, but to see the boys run out in a jersey that um, a lot of passion went into and there's a lot of sto- – the story is told of all of the Indigenous players are on that jersey. So every one of the Wallabies who ran out that day, including – Kurtley Beale, did he, no, was he there? Yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kurtley ran out knowing. Oh, Kurtley might have been over in France. No, he, yeah, he, he was, was there for the launch. Yeah, though, yeah, he? yeah. So those boys all knew that they were running out and they had on them, playing with them, all of the Indigenous Wallabies that have ever played in the history of the Wallabies being around. So that was something really special for them to understand and the journey that they had been on and the the historical value of that because there was a lot of history that went about being Indigenous and um, playing for the Wallabies. So it was a really exciting time and, and it's something great that I left not long after that they launched the jersey, um, much to Jeremy's dismay, no free tickets <laughs> no and free tickets. merch. Um, but he, yeah, it was really something exciting to be part of especially in the background, um, I, I um, quite humble and, and I'm very much in the background, quite achiever, try not to plug a lot of things. So just to see it come about and see it in fruition and um, the pride that I saw people have about the jersey and now every single time the jersey is relaunched and and brought about I just have so much happiness when I see it and I was able so I commissioned the artist who is Dennis Golding who's a um a boy who grew up around La Perouse and and uh, from a very strong family and very very talented artist in both the digital space and storytelling he did the artwork for it 
and just to see his contribution to that and to see him put on that international stage as well. Uh, and Dennis, in his right mind at that time, was very uh, well known in the art space. But I followed along Dennis's career since then and it is just taken off. He He's doing some amazing things out there having exhibitions. So I, I just want to give a plug to Dennis as well, who who is really talented. Um, and one someone that I really look up to as well in the art world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, just again, we will get to Garabarabara, but you did mention um, in, in your own intro uh, about the work you're currently doing with national parks and and getting more traditional landowners and get engaged in 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 that work part of that is you actually spending time in places like uluru and kakadu um could you just talk about those experiences being actually on country and talking to the 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 people there that you you're trying to connect with yeah well it, it it's definitely it, it's definitely really rewarding um it's a massive sacrifice as you know on our family we've got our two young girls who who I absolutely adore but you know I'm very torn that I have this amazing career that I want to pursue and I'm quite ambitious in in that regards that I want to fight I come from a long line of staunch Aboriginal family who have have spent a lot of time fighting for justice and reconciliation and and um, education and equal opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so it's inherent in me it's it's something that doesn't go away so coming back off maternity leave I've, I've been back in the workforce for 12 months and really trying to find that uh, medium and and find that peace between being home with family and spend dedicating my time there but then also really dedicating my time to my work and having that so part of the job is we can't make decisions for people on their own country without one their input and them um us driving their aspirations and self-determination and you can't do that from Canberra you can't do that off country and you need to be there to drive those aspirations and understand the lay of the land so I'm very well aware that my family are from New South Wales and colonization hit very early on in in my culture so I've lost it I've, I've lost all that language I've, I've lost so much of that connection and our traditional customs and corroborees and dances a lot of that is lost but when you go up north you the impact that you see and the connection is still so strong and so inherent so inherent so they they still do traditional ceremonies and corroborees and initiations and um they follow kinship laws which 
really speak to how you interact with your community and interact with the community that you work in and your cousins and your family. There are strict laws and um, and by law I don't mean Western law, I mean traditional law, which is L-O-R-E. So that's followed and that's something to be really respected and when you go up there, you're being seen as a person that is uh, a non-Indigenous person because you're not from that land and you need to go up there and, yes, you've got a job to do and you're a government employee, which also brings issues because we all know, um, unless you don't, but you should, uh, Aboriginal people do not have the best relationship with the government. There's a long, long history of the white Australia policy and and things to do with that, um, which would take more than one podcast to get your head around. But please do your research. I think that's one of my big big things is do your own research um, and and educate yourself about the true history of this country. So going up there is is like you're heading to a different world. Um, you head up there and everything's different. So, yes, Uluru, uh, Katajuda and Kakadu, both in the NT but miles apart. The local people in Uluru are the Ananu and their language is Pitanjara. So um, going up there, learning phrases, learning about the history of, of, of the culture, understanding their aspirations and what they want as a board because all of these national parks are run by boards, which is majority held by traditional owners from all of the family groups. So they have a say in how the park is run and they understand their rights around that. So going up there with a very open heart, eyes wide open, walking in and saying, well, I don't have all the answers, but what do you what do you want as, as traditional owners and law keepers? How can I best help you do that and walk in those two worlds? Because, yes, we do have systems and structures that we need to abide by as a government entity but how do we manage those um and how do we walk together in these two worlds and and that's my role is to create that conduit between the traditional owners and the government to increase those employment opportunities and bend structures and make it more accessible and easy uh gone are the days of that you you need to fill out a selection criteria and have all these stock standard bureaucratic approaches uh, to employing people but we've got rangers who are out there that you know you can you should be able to say your main job is to clear weeds. So why can't we interview them and say, let's go out on country, point out five weeds that we have um, and tell me all the different ways that you would kill that weed or manage it. Um, 
if you're working in feral animal control, tell me, show me what uh, impacts they have on the landscape and how we try and detract them and cull them and get them out on country, show show me the footprints. Um, if I walk up to somewhere and say, oh, this dirt's been turned over and you can explain to me how it's been turned over. Is it a pig? Is it a camel? Is it a buffalo? Um, and how do we manage that? How do we maintain that? So thinking outside the box to create these opportunities. So traditional owners can care for their country that they've lived on for nearly 60 to 70,000 years. Is there, do, you, do you find in your work that there's much of an education piece for you uh, on the on the Canberra or the government side, the people who aren't from Indigenous background, who aren't familiar with these communities um, and, and how they operate, but want to do well, is like how, how big of an education piece is it for you to, to teach these people that, actually there are different approaches that not only will they help, but they're actually critical to any kind of success that, that the government will have in engaging with them. Yeah, I mean, there's always an education piece that comes along with this work. Um, I think we're very lucky, the, the political landscape that we've got at the moment. We've got one of the stronger, well, the strongest party, Labor Party, for Indigenous peoples um, that we've ever seen in the history. We're, we're going to, we're having a referendum that's coming up, which is really exciting. Um, where funding for Indigenous affairs has been um, put up. So through the budget, there, there's a deeper understanding from that level, even from employment, there is what I would say is the, the biggest employment of Indigenous people working at Parliament House up on Capitol Hill. So that's even a shift. So mind, mindsets are shifting um, and it's all about the conversation. So it's continuing the conversation, making it part of the norm. Everything I say about my role is I, I like my job, I like to get paid, but I ultimately want my job to not be there because it shouldn't be just my responsibility or, you know, my bosses or my team, but it should be everyone's job. This is everyone's piece. Everyone should be working towards the same goal and that's closing the gap, uh, which we have many gaps, but whether it's in child mortality, education, health, Whatever your piece is, you will most likely in your career have an impact on the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So don't turn to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to say, well, this is your issue, you need to fix it. But it's everyone's responsibility to work harmoniously together, to walk side by side, to create meaningful impact um, and that's something we talk about a lot in my career is cultural load so uh, very often are you pointed to as the Indigenous person in the room and a lot of the time you're sitting at a table especially in the government you're sitting at a table in a meeting and you are 
most likely the only or very small percentage of Indigenous representation around that table. And the joke is, it's not really a joke, but I mean, you have to, if you don't laugh, you cry. Um, but when we come to do acknowledgement of countries, people will just turn to the first black person and go, oh, well, you can do it. Well, no, anyone can acknowledge country. It's not a, if you're doing a welcome, yes, a welcome is very different because an Aboriginal person can only welcome you to their traditional land. But a, an acknowledgement is you paying respect to the land and the custodianship of that land previously and you were working together and utilising that land. So anyone can do that and that's not just on the Indigenous person in the room. So don't put that load on them. Um, the best thing I heard at one of my, at a conference I went to was, we're not your black Siri. Um, <laughs> so don't, you know, it's not our job to educate you. We can, we'll have a yarn to you, we'll have a chat to you, but there's books, there's Google. Um, there's a lot of information out there for you to do that. Um, but I think, yeah, a big thing is to educate yourself and to realise that it's your job as well. It's it's all of our jobs to work together. We have a very multicultural Australia. Um, I mean, look at my look at our girls. Mm. They're they're very proud. Fijian Aboriginal English girls <laughs> and you know every day of the week I will tell them that is their upbringing that is their culture that they are not just one culture but they will be respectful of that and understand that they have a very multicultural they have multicultural blood running through their veins and it's our responsibility to pass that on to the next generation Absolutely. Now, in amongst all of the work, amazing work that you're doing, um, and your your uh, your day job, uh, your, uh, your 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 day job career, you, you you've also got this. I mean, it's actually thriving right now. This um, art business, which you've 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 always been, well, yeah, you know, throughout our entire relationship, you've always been very artistic and. And but now you you you've sort of focused that into this 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 venture, Gary Barabara, which um, I'm you know, I'm so proud of you uh, for 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 starting that and for running with it the way you have. Um, could you just tell the listeners about it? Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess background to Gary Barabara. It stands for Sagara is um, land and uh, sand in Wiradjuri language so um from my grandmother's country and barabara -bara means sea in durga or durga uh language which is the language of the walbunja yuan people on my grandfather's side so i wanted something to really represent me uh, and and my connection so my art is very much pulled from what I see around me, the landscapes, the influences that I have as, I guess, an urban Aboriginal and someone who is connected to their culture as well. But everything 
that represents me in between the sand and the sea. Um, because my my grandmother, uh, Elizabeth, she grew up on the sand hills in Narandra. So those are very prominent out there in, in, in that area. And then the sea is Wabundjera sea people. So thrive off the ocean and what it can provide um, through food and resources So and sustainable fishing. So I wanted to really represent that to represent me and the two. And so my logo of the of the um, art business has the sand goanna, which is the the Wiradjuri, and then the Umbara, which is the black duck for uh, Yuan country. So I really wanted that to represent a piece of me and, and my two cultures that are really inherent in me um, and something that I am really proud to have uh, running through my veins. At first I sort of, I didn't think I was that good. I uh, I, I just did sketching. I had a sketch pad. Um, well, you got me a really cool uh, leather-bound sketchbook. Mm. Um, for, our, uh, for our six, six month six dating month anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a great present and I just sort of thought, oh, you know, we all we all have our struggles and and how we cope with those and mental health and anxieties and all the pressures that world throws at us. E- drawing was my escape and just sketching and and recreating. So my my pop Keith Stewart was um my hero and he was a very talented artist and um I model myself on him he was very humble as well so he he didn't live above his means he was a very um very humble man that lived in La Perouse was born down in Berry on the south coast and and traveled up and down uh due to the timing and work was seasonal. They picked beans down um, on the south coast and then when the season was up, came to Sydney and worked for the council. He followed my nan out to Narandra and built the railway out there and uh, missed the salt water. Salt water people don't do well with fresh water because uh, freshwater fish is not as good. Um, sorry to all of the Wiradjuri mob out there and inland um, people, but we are saltwater fish people and we need our saltwater fixes. And so the the yabbies, as, as delicious as they can be, and your freshwater fish, just we're not doing it for him. So he had to come home and he bought um, my nan and couple of kids that they had over there which was one was my mum and they brought them back to the the south coast and he yeah was just this man of wisdom and very very softly spoken but heard when he needed to be and he did amazing amazing artworks and sometimes he'd sell them for a pack of smokes or uh, a $20 note so I could go put a bet on the horses. That was just the way he operated. And he, he didn't, he didn't do it to make money. He did it because he loved creating 
And that was his escape as well. He he would go into his art room, he would pump his country music, so he's Patsy Klein and um Charlie Pride was was playing. They were they were the songs that were my childhood. And he would go and escape into his art room and and create and he just loved doing it. And so I pull my inspiration from him and I wanted to also just recreate some of the artwork that he had because we had lost a bit or he'd given things away. Uh, my mum has a lot of his artwork that she keeps and very prominent in my mum's house. But I thought, well, how am I going to pass that on to my kids and make them know him because they never got to meet him? Um how are they going to know the impact he had on my life um, and the artwork and the beautiful art that he created? So it was me ultimately just sketching and copying a little bit of what he did, but then putting my own twist and turn on it. And it wasn't for a couple of years that I actually decided to put paint on a canvas um, I just had heaps of sketches going and then I thought, oh, I'll give it a shot and did a couple of paintings and then I thought, oh, I'll try and sell them, see how it goes. And um, people actually wanted to buy them. I was really shocked. So, yeah, it's sort of just come about and, I mean, I've got my champions here. My uh, till, uh, The girls sit there and... Um, Tilly will say, oh, mum, you're so so beautiful. Your painting's so beautiful. And I called Jeremy in to say, what does this look like? What do you think? Oh, I don't know about this. And so I've got my champions behind me and my support crew really pushing me along. I'm really excited just to explore it. I don't, if it goes nowhere, I, I don't mind because I just love creating and just the thought of people having a piece of me because I, I do, I put my heart and soul into the painting. So if you do get anything from me, it's got a piece of me and my family in it. And yeah, just the thought of those pieces hanging in people's houses that they see every day is... Um, yeah, it's a feeling you can't really describe. It's just very, it's very moving. Mm. You, one, one thing that um, other 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 guests that I've had on who are who are artists or creators like yourself, um, they they sort of struggle with is yeah, they yeah. I think, and this is something you can probably relate to is like a lot of the a lot of people in, within the Pacifica culture. Uh, cultures are quite humble by nature but as a creator and especially if you're trying to share your work you have to champion yourself and and put yourself out there how 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 much how much ha, has that been a struggle for you or is that something that you've been able to sort of work on like how how has that big you know, sort of being your own sort of hype hype person been for you Oh yeah, I hate it. <laughs> uh, it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. I um and like as I just said, I'm I I just like to meld into the background and do my do my work and and see see it come to fruition and step away. Um, so yeah, I I'm still struggling with that. Um, 
it's only been the last couple of months that I've actually had this side business going. And, you know, as you know, we're, mm. we're, we're not very um, time rich no. <laughs> in our lives. All the parents can relate to that. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing art at 10 o'clock at night once we've got the kids down to bed. We actually get time to feed ourselves and, you know, have a bit of time to just go, okay, yep, day's done. Do it all over again tomorrow. So the time I even have to create is not that much. And so, yeah, so just trying to find that, straddling that piece and then trying to find time to actually promote it and talk about it to people is a lot smaller and I yeah I don't I'm not a big person to say oh this is me this is what I do very very behind the scenes I um, am a severe introvert that you know I don't even like talking about myself so um, you know lucky I just I kind of like the host of this pod yeah I was was gonna say it's just (laughs) Um, he's all right. He's not a bad bloke. So I was like, I guess so. I'll do him a favor. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I just, I don't, yeah, it's very hard. And I think that's a cultural, it's a very cultural thing as well. Um, I mean, not some of my family, they don't have problems (laughs) talking about themselves and pumping, pumping up their, um, themselves, which Which is a good thing. I love it. I love it. But, yeah, no, I just, I think it is. It's a big Indigenous culture and, you know, and that's also part of my job and gives me a deeper understanding about recruiting is that um, shame element across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that making eye, not making no. eye contact is not actually rude um, and educating people to understand that, that, it's a respect thing that, you know, they won't, lots of people and lots of the young ones won't make eye contact with people out of pure respect. Mm. Um, and that was a big learning curve as well for when I was with rugby was the grassroots level. And someone would say to me, ah, oh, you know, how do we get more Aboriginal kids to come and play? And I said, well, the hard thing is we're competing with AFL and NRL who have heroes, people, but I mean, they're adored the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players that are there. They're absolutely they're household names. They're, they're very big and they do it well. So one, you're competing in the landscape and that's not even with Indigenous people. I mean, rugby in Australia is slowly dying, um, which is really sad because it's a, it's such a great game. Um, but it's great to see the sevens. That I mean, the sevens are starting to really rally and, I mean, there's nothing more that gets your heart racing than watching seven minutes of, of full-on rugby. Um, so it, it was about that and I said to them, I said, well, you know, there's a lot of, there was a one story that I was told, which I always remember. It was a girl who was making it into, um, so not to 
say names, but she was making it into a very elite level. And as part of that level, you had to have a very strict diet because you were under a microscope on what you would eat and your training and everything was was monitored. And so majority of the girls in the team were hiring personal trainers and dietitians and people who can help them along along the way, which is really great. But there was no thought process that went in from the coaches or the support staff to think that would not happen. And so the young Indigenous girl who came along and she was put on the scales and um, she was measuring and they're like, you're not, your scales are not shifting, you're not, you're not putting in the effort, you're not doing what you need to do. And was very quiet and very shamed about it. And then as it went on, she sort of just said to them and said, well, if mum brings home KFC, I need to eat that because if I don't eat it, I don't eat. Um, And that was her reality. She could not afford a dietitian. She could not afford having fresh food in the house and eating salads and you know that access to food and that even the education she said to them she goes oh but I take the skin off my KFC I'm not eating the skin and the training staff were just did not know how to react they did not know they weren't this was never a conversation that they had ever had or ever thought that they would have. So they weren't equipped with how to work around this. And I said, well, that's, yeah, that's an education piece. Now that you've learned that, you can move around and let's put into place things that we can do to assist this young girl because her talent is just raw, pure talent that you're not going to lose. But how do we work in with her background and her lifestyle which is very different to the other girls in the team um and I think that's just a learning curve that not everyone is the same um and then also flipping that on on its head also not thinking well every indigenous person who's going to come along is going to be poor and won't have access to food so you need to straddle that and have it as a case by case you know there's questions you can ask you can sit people down and say well what's your current diet look like and but there was none of that pre pre-testing or work uh tailored approach to the people it was just automatically well most of the girls will have dietitians or access to this and their education with food will be really good and they'll know how to do it. So that's just a simple example of, you know, have those conversations, have have those raw and honest conversations, learn about people's histories and backgrounds, and then you can tailor your approach to it to make it work for them. Um, now, you spoke before about not being a black Siri, and I don't want to I don't want to treat you that way, but there we, we do have a um, an international audience who may not have a full understanding of the context of um, the 
the recent history of uh, Indigenous Australians in this country and, and why we have days like uh, Reconciliation Day. So uh, for for you for you personally, like what what do you? I mean, you gave me a really really good um, a really really good sort of explanation yesterday um, of Reconciliation Day and, and the, the difference that has to or Re- Reconciliation Week. Sorry, um, as we're at, we're now in now. Um, and 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 how that differs to say NAIDOC week. Could you just talk to me about and the listeners about what reconciliation week is to you? Hmm. <clears throat> so yeah. So to put it into um I- into a way people can understand. So yeah, we have two very um explicit weeks during the year uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the easiest way to explain it is you've got national reconciliation week which is about coming together white black coming together to create a reconciled future and understanding the past and what comes with that is truth telling so as a nation we are not the best at the truth the history of how this country came about differs amongst lots of people. Um, The way it was um, founded, which, I mean, I don't know if you can use the word found when it wasn't lost. It it had people living here, so you can't find something um, or discover. Um, So I think the contention, just understanding that history, and being taught in school. So majority of the listeners here, if you were raised in Australia, your education was Captain Cook found Australia. Um, But Aboriginal kids were going home and getting a very different education. Um, So it was was very different and confusing for, for young people when you were getting taught two different things from your home and from your school. So that's a whole kettle of fish that we need to look at our education system on the truth telling of this country. Um, But that's Reconciliation Week is, that's how I see it is, you know, understanding the history of our country, coming together to reconcile um, and walk on this journey together. Whereas NAIDOC Week is just a celebration. And I find, I, I probably like NAIDOC week a little bit better um not that you should pick and choose what you like um but it's just the celebration of the culture there there were 250 at least 250 languages spoken in Australia or what we call Australia now before colonization um and that's you know how many there were more clan groups and uh, tribes are spread out. So the culture in our country is just so massive. So you get a bit of a taste of that during NAIDOC week and you get to celebrate, have fun, go to performances, um, but you also learn history and, and a bit of that. But Reconciliation Week purely is was created because it is top and tailed with two very significant anniversaries that we have in this country. So most people um, of our parents' generation uh, would remember uh, 
a referendum that this this country had. So referendums are the only way we can change our constitution, uh, which is the constitution is our highest legal document in this country and uh, our highest law document for for the whole of Australia. So to make any changes to that, the whole country has to vote on that to approve any change. It's a very hard, um, a very expensive avenue to take, but it's it's necessary if you want to change a document. So if you put it into perspective, the Constitution was written in 1901 um, and there have been eight successful changes since then. Um, and the most successful change was in 1967, and that was a vote to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people included in the census. So that's within our generation. Um, before then, um, Aboriginal and people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's rights were quite limited. Um, it's a myth if people say that they were given voting rights at the 1967 referendum. Um, we were given voting rights in 1963. I hope no one's fact-checking me because I'm not sure if I'm getting it 100% yes. right. We're all friends and allies. But, yeah, so that's a, that's a common myth around, around the 1967 referendum. Um, but over 90, it was over 90% of people, I don't, I think it was up near 96, 97% voted yes. So it's the most successful referendum Australia has ever seen in the history, history of our constitution, uh, which was really good, uh, really good. So uh, the 27th of May is the anniversary of that, and that's the first day of National Reconciliation Week, so it's always on the same day every year. Um, and then to finish off the week is on the 3rd of June, which is uh, the anniversary of the Mabo decision. So that was the High Court decision that um, Eddie Mabo pushed and fought for for many, many years for native title um, rights and that landmark decision ultimately changed the way Australia viewed and applied native title across this country. And so they are two very significant stepping stones in the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs in this country. Um, they are very historic moments and something that people something that should be taught to everyone in our schools to understand that um, because there was a time in our history that Aboriginal people uh, um, and Torres Strait Islander people were under the Fauna and Flora Act so Fauna and Flora as everyone knows are plants um, trees, the flowers, and they put people under that. Um, and so, and that's not even long ago. So my mum was classified as a plant, um, which is just gobsmacking to sort of think she had no rights. And, 
you know, people were rounded up, not to get full into the history, but, well, you know. It's important too. <laughs> but people were rounded up and put on missions and kids were stolen, which which gives us the stolen generation, which is another significant day, um, which is the day before um, Reconciliation Week on the 26th of um, May. So that's the anniversary we call Sorry Day. Um, and that is to acknowledge um, stolen generations and the impact that that had on this country and the displacement that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still face um, and their ability to connect with their culture because they were forcibly removed from their home and shipped across the country and Basically, if you think about why that happened, to put it bluntly, is colonisation came, white government, the white Australia policy goes, oh, we can just breed out the black um, and get rid of it. It's just going to die off on its own. Um, They're not going to be able to survive out in the bush and we take everything off them and take the kids who are semi-fair skinned and we'll put them into the homes that the nuns will run um, and then they will be bred into them that they are English, that they are Catholic, that they are white and they will marry white people and their kids will just slowly keep dying out the Aboriginal blood and, you know, people can pass off as being white if they're a little bit tanned. And that was the view. That was, that was the thought process. And, and that's, if you think that's the thought process, can you imagine how a constitution was written in 1901? They thought there were going to be no Aboriginal people in this country when they wrote it. And I, I can promise you it was all men. Um, I mean, women didn't even have voting rights and that was white women as well. So women were treated as second-class citizens in 1901. Um, Aboriginal people were treated as plants and not even living beings and thought of, well, we can just you know, breed them out and, and they'll be gone. It, it's just an issue that we won't have to deal with. Um, but, I mean... 2023, um, jokes on them, we're still here. <laughs> you can't get rid of us. Um, and, you know, the only saving grace we have is, well, they're all dead now. So we, we um, you know, the, the sad thing is we can't, as, as their thought process went, we're unable to breed out racism, um, which I think I wish was easier, um, but we still face it very um very strongly these days people face racism on a daily basis yeah. and uh, I mean you're wearing blinders if you don't think that that is out there because uh, it is and it's not just First Nations people of Australia I'm um you know Jeremy you face racism in this oh. country <laughs> and I mean <laughs> you're born and raised here and you know second generation Fijian and it's very clear that racism is around in this yeah, country. Yeah, I think, I think everyone's sort of of diverse backgrounds, culturally gifted uh, backgrounds has at some point rubbed up against it. So you've got your, um, your day job, um, which keeps you very busy. 
You've also got Gary Barabara, which keeps you even busier. You've got two amazing daughters and an equally amazing husband. Well, my third child. You third child. Um, for fourth after Lenny, a, a dog. <laughs> uh, um, what do you do, like, apart from it? Like, how do you, how do you unwind? What, what's, your, what's your happy place? Um, I mean, I'm pretty simple. I just like to be, like, very, very motivated by family and community and my mob. And, and by family, I mean, like, my, my family that I inherited when I got married. So, <laughs> um, and I think that's, that was, I mean, no secret. It's a very testament of why I think we worked and, and we sparked so early on our cultural background and understanding and, it's a, it's a joke that I make with friends when I was dating is, well, dates turn into cultural awareness sessions and I don't like that. Um, it's just annoying or, um, yeah, people just don't get it and I don't want to have to explain it. So when we dating, when you if, found out I was Aboriginal, yeah. it was just like, okay, yeah. And it, no, but what do you, what do you do? And then you said, well, I work at the ARU. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then you fangirled over um, everyone. Me everyone being, I met. Me being related to uh, the Ellers and. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to do you want to tell the listeners the story of the first time I met your uncle Glenn? Which one? The one where you were at the were, dog park. Oh uh, yeah, that you were very very concerned. I wasn't warm. <laughs> presentation. So I'm very. I was very lucky in Sydney. Um, I lived close to lots of my family in La Perouse and uh, my cousin got a dog and there was a local dog park. So we would have lots of play dates at the dog park and Jeremy had um, come over, spent the night um, at my place and I was messaging my cousin and I said, oh, yeah, we'll go to the dog park. And I said to Jeremy, I said, oh, do you want to go to the dog park? Uh, it'll be like it's just down the road, it's not far. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. Who, and who are we meeting? And I said, oh, well, my cousin, Jess, um, and and their dog, Esme, which is the, the Esme the bulldog, and um, oh, my uncle, Glenn Ella. And you were like, yeah, yeah, at first, you're like, yeah, 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 we'll just go, we'll just go. And then when I say Glenn Ella, your first we're in the car word, at that stage. Yeah, your first word was, I better go put underwear on. <laughs> and I just could not fathom. I was like, oh, so it's okay for you who's very early on in our relationship. Nothing had been sealed. No ring was on my finger. And you thought it was okay just to go down to the local dog park with no underwear on, looking pretty disheveled. Um, but as soon as you hear the great Glenn Ella um, <laughs> is going to be there, you thought that was the bar. And why Why he, like what situation I thought I was going to get in where he would get upset that I wasn't wearing underwear. Yeah. <laughs> and then we got there and you barely spoke to him because you were just too, you were just too fangirling. And he was lovely, to be fair. He, he tried very hard. <laughs> Looking back on it, I was... Borderline rude in terms of how. 
And this was just after he had coached for England with his good mate Eddie. And so you just couldn't fathom as well his outfit choice. (laughs) Um, So he was wearing England rugby shorts, um, a Wallabies, no, Randwick cap. And a wallaby shirt. Um, So, yeah, he was just very conflicted on who we supported. But I was like, well, he just got free merch and that's what he's wearing. And I said, he's wearing his entire CV (laughs) in his outfit. Um, Yeah. And because, I mean, I grew up in a time, I wasn't old enough to see them play that much. I think I would have only been a couple of years old. So, to me, they're just, well... Uncle Glenn's just very grumpy. He's he's just the grumpy one who laughs and giggles. And then Uncle Gary is very, very smart and, um, yeah, very down to earth. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, to me they're just my, my uncles that I see at camp because we have a beautiful camping spot on our traditional country that, you know, at any time there's about 20 different family groups camping there at Christmas. So, that was my upbringing, always there, always camping. They were just always there out on the boat and I was just trying to steal fish off everyone and get fresh food or get fed wherever I possibly could and card games were a big thing in our in our life. So It's you know, still a big thing. It's still a big thing. And, um, yeah, so they were not these sports people that I had ever, you know, looked at for their career. Um, they were just my family um, mm. and I loved them for for that. So it wasn't really until I started working for rugby that I understood a little bit more the impact that they had. Um, and not only them. So, I mean, there's a the Ellas are a family of 12 and four of them have represented Australia mm. um, in sport. So the three brothers in Rugby, and then Animasia, Ella Duncan, who uh, represented Australia for Nepal um, and went to, um, yeah, played that on an international stage and was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. So, I mean, very, very talented um, sporting family because, I mean, that was the lay of the land back when they were were growing up, sport gave them a purpose. Sport gave them somewhere to hone in because um, education was sort of a thing where you would just do so you, one, wouldn't get taken from your family and if you attended school, you would get your allowance. Um, Well, your family would get their allowance for the week. If you didn't go to school, you didn't get your allowance. So school was seen as a thing that you have to do, not something you go to to better yourself or get an education, which... Um, create it creates that mindset that well what's the point I don't need to I only need to be here so I can live with my family and my family can get money so they can feed me uh, which is really really a sad fact um, but that was my mum's upbringing and her siblings and um, so the Ellas are my mum's first cousins um, and yeah that was just what they had and so they honed their skills uh, into sport and just loved it and 
was very successful and very lucky to have such successful careers out of it and still still um you know still have very successful careers post playing rugby which i think a lot of sports people mm-hmm. um struggle with. struggle with yeah um with yeah there'd be i hope that there are young people um young indigenous and pacifica people listening to this who would uh who are thinking about setting out on their own artistic or creative journeys you're you're in you're in a really exciting point in your your journey with your artwork where it's it's really starting to blossom it's really starting to thrive what 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 advice would you give to those people who maybe haven't taken that first step yet yeah i think it's just back yourself you be be true to who you are I think when I was starting out, um, social media is such a good platform, but it's also very intimidating because I would sit there and just scroll through posts from these amazing, talented Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and just go, what what good am I to this landscape? My art is nowhere near as good as theirs or, you know, I, I'm not doing these reels or all of these things that come with that social media aspect of promoting yourself. And I'm not out there doing that or my art. I, I don't, I, I just do canvas. I tried to do digital art. It's too hard and I gave up. So I don't do it, but there are so many people out there who have so many different talents in different areas. So don't let that intimidate you uh, is the biggest key and just own your space, own who you are and people will see that come through. And the biggest piece is, you know, you only need a couple of people to really support you, but also drown out negative views because they usually are louder than any support you will receive um so uh, we are living in a country that social media has created a very big groundswell of racial abuse for people and we're seeing it with our sports people at the moment but in the art artistic world i'm seeing it a lot especially during reconciliation week which you know, I, I don't like the fact that people think we need. It's great to have two weeks uh, that we celebrate Indigenous culture and reconciliation, but you know, be very mindful that you can do it 365 days of the year as well. So I w- I would definitely tell people that you know, be who you are and and own yourself, but don't wait for these two weeks yep. if you want to do something, and that's for allies. Um, more more heavily but for young people coming up or even if you're not young and you want to change I mean I I don't think I'm allowed to say I'm young anymore I still do I I still try um oh god um and so yeah it's just own your space and and push that and know your limits and your boundaries and you can say no I think one of the biggest learnings I've had is don't push yourself. Um, A big thing for me is, which I have not failed, well, actually I have, but 
as the increase on Indigenous affairs is being pushed in this country, we'll see more people approaching people, especially during Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week, to sit on panels and share their story. Um, do not do that for free. Um, I'm sending Jeremy my invoice after this. I will um, probably lose that invoice. Yes, um, we, he can pay for it out of our joint account. <laughs> um, but, yes, you can say no or you can say, well, this is my starting fee mm. and um, for panels you can pay me for my time. If you're doing welcome to countries or acknowledgement to countries, they pay you for your time. Um, your knowledge is worth it is you can't put money on it but they can pay you for your time because you are imparting your wisdom um lawyers are not giving advice away for free scientists are not giving away advice for free we as cultural authorities and law keepers and traditional custodians we need to stop giving away our time for free because it's not something that we should be asked to do. We should not be put in a position to be asked, but people will be. So I would put it on to allies in businesses. Don't put people in a position to have to ask to be paid. Um, be very upfront with your budget so people pick and choose. But if that's not happening, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or First Nations people or cultural authorities from any First Nations from across the country, Pacific Islanders, send people invoices and say, this is my starting fee and you can get me for this. If you don't, then you, you miss out. But no longer will we be doing this for uh, the exposure um, because I'm sick of hearing people say, oh, it's for the exposure. Yeah. Um no, no, um, I, I'll do it for the exposure, but I'll also get paid for that. The exposure is part of it. Yeah, it, it, you can do both. Um, so I think that's a big thing. My advice for people who are up and coming is, you know, make sure you you know your worth, you, you, you know that, and um, really push back on that. Know your limits. Um, but stand very strong in your culture and your authority because not only are we doing this for ourselves, we're doing this for our ancestors, um, we're doing this for, as we spoke about the anniversaries, we're doing this for the people who survived colonisation. We're doing this for the people who fought for us to be included in legal documents we're doing this for people who fought for native title and to change the history and the landscape of this land the fight is not over um it, to some it's only just begun but we're evolving and we're going to have to continue to fight i don't see it will be finished it's very it's unfinished business and my kids were going to have to pick up on that should they wish um but I think as you walk, I, I know that I'm not walking alone. I'm walking with allies beside me, uh, my family, but then my ancestors, I carry a piece of them with me on everything that I do. Mm. Now, the, there'll be people, I'm convinced, who will have listened to this, who want to uh, connect with you or, or follow you on, on social media. Where can people find you? 
Yeah, so I am on Instagram. Um, uh, you'll put a link? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll link you. Uh, so I'm on, I have an Instagram for Garabarabara uh, on Insta and then also on Facebook. So, yeah, you can just um, either follow for the art or, you know, yeah, I'm very open to chatting with people or, or, or talking about things. Um just, yeah, send me a message with your budget and we can work around from there. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy to have a yarn with anyone. I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's a really meaningful conversation and something people should have. And, and if you have those burning questions, I think that's a, one of the things we went to early on, which was a really cool comedy um, oh, set, which was... I'm not racist, but... I'm not racist, but... And, I've had I've actually been a part of a few panel um conversations which are it was a TV show I think but you do panel conversations called you can't ask that mm. um and you you will let people submit anonymous questions of those burning questions that you feel like you can't ask um but you really want to know mm. um I have a few of those so um <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just natural that people want to know things and sometimes you might think it's not appropriate to ask, but my big thing is you, you don't know what you don't know um, and that's okay. Like don't ask me about, I know I know a lot about history and Indigenous affairs, but, you know, don't come and ask me about geography. You, don't ask me to point out a country on a map because mm. I won't be able to do it. Um, so she I can think show you where the South Coast is. Yes, I'll show you where the South Coast <laughs> is. Um, but yeah, I'll show you where Fiji is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that's the biggest thing is you don't know what you don't know. You can't help your knowledge, um, but it's about how you take that information. So what I say to people is, I will never judge you for asking a question but if I take the time out to have a conversation with you to educate you on something and you choose not to listen or you choose not to adapt your thinking or interaction with that specific piece of information then I will judge you um and I will probably not agree and we probably will not just get along but I think that's the biggest thing for me is what you do with the information and the education that you take on, um, what you do with that um, will definitely impact um, on me. Yeah. Fair. And you're, um, you're going to the NADOC markets coming up? Yeah, so it's the second one. So they had an inaugural um nadoc winter markets down in naruma the um god's country mm. um on the far south coast of new south wales so they are going to be on the 8th of july at uh the main oval in naruma and um very excited my 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 cousins um helping run the event so i've got a, a stall there my very first stall um i'm getting everyone to give me free labor so jeremy and the girls are all coming Ooh, down yeah. um uh you know we might do a live pod yeah <laughs> 
we're, we're doing something for me, don't we? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I mean, if you're in the vicinity of the south coast of New South Wales, please come on down. Um, but otherwise, I think when I have time, I, I, I'll, I'll try and launch maybe an Etsy page or a shop somehow. I, I haven't decided how I'm going to do it. Um, it's very fast and loose in this house. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I will be selling some things at the art but looking to get some more prints and I've got some exciting work underway with um, – Brett Fairhurst, so he's he's a he's a mate that I've connected with who was living down on the south coast. Who's a very talented, talented uh, across a lot of mediums, but he um, did some drone photography. So we're doing a bit of collaboration between um, his photos that he's taken around the south coast, which are absolutely beautiful, and then I paint a bit of a story over that and um, we'll be selling some prints and um, cards and postcards and things across that. And um, if anyone knows me, they know homewares are my absolute weakness and I just (laughs) love them. So Jeremy doesn't know this. This is the first announcement, but I'm speaking to some providers to see if I can make homewares, um, some lovely pillowcases and table runners. Um, yeah, when I find the time. Oh, that's really, (laughs) I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear that too. (laughs) Um, but yeah, look, we'll, we'll all be there. So if you're, um, as as Cass said, if you're in the area, uh, come drop by drop drop by the markets, um, drop by the store, uh, even just for a yarn, just for a chat. But um, no, we'd we'd love to love to see you all there. And um, Cass, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Uh, I know you had to travel a long way, so I appreciate the you making the uh, the, the the awful commute yeah, to from be the here today. Lounge room, yeah, yeah, from the lounge room, <laughs> to the dining room. Uh, much much appreciated. Sorry, recording studio. <laughs> All right. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you once again. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful. See you you at lunch. And that was uh, my chat with the amazing, the wonderful, the talented uh, Cass Lardner. She's, uh, I may be a little bit biased here, but she was just fantastic. And it was, um, as I said, at the top of the show, a lot of, a lot of stuff we went over was um, things that I'm, um, Fairly, fairly, fairly uh, familiar with, but yeah, you know, I, I just thought um, yeah, you know, her, her journey is 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 a really, really uh, special one, and one that uh, you know, on an occasion such as this reconciliation week, uh, what yeah, you know, what a wonderful way to 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 showcase that journey and to bring it to uh, to to you, the audience. So I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, you know, it was uh, very enjoyable for me, and uh, Cass assures me for her as well. So it was. Uh, it, it was great. So thank you, thank you for listening. Um, as we said during the uh, during the chat, uh, I'll, uh, I'll link all of her social media to the show notes in this episode. So check them out. Um, she's yeah, she's putting stuff up. Uh, she's prolific. Uh, so uh, plenty of stuff already on there, and then plenty of stuff going up um, continuously, sort of throughout throughout um, each week. And um, yeah, as she said, reach out with any sort of questions or any, any yeah. You know, if you just want a bit of a chat, she's um, she's great for that, as you know, I know firsthand. Uh, also, please, if you're not already, follow the uh, follow this podcast, the Coconut Wireless, on social media. We're on um, bloody hell, we're on um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and now uh, TikTok. 
So uh, that's that's a new new avenue uh, you can you can engage with us on. I'll link all of those in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but yeah, apart from that, thank you so much for um, for for joining me and uh, and Cass on this on this episode. It's been uh, fantastic, and uh, I, yeah, I look forward to. I know there was a bit of a hiatus there for a few weeks uh, since the last episode with um, with Coach Mapusua. Uh, yeah, I've, I've just been uh, had had some family things going on, and and um, just need to take a bit of a breather. Uh, but yeah, I'm back, and and we're uh, we're raring to go, and I've got a, a few fantastic guests lined up, so it should be great. So um, until next time, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and I'll catch you then. More there.